0: Hello and welcome to Musings on History. Episode 9.9 Precolonial African Interactions. Welcome back to Musings on History. This episode is the penultimate in the Ancient Africa series and it is about pre-colonial African interactions with the wider world. Often it's taught that Africans, especially sub-Saharan Africans, were unaware of the rest of the world which is a very strange position to take when you consider that Africa is literally located in the center of the earth and all the major trade winds pass through African waters on all points of the continent. Now. Before I start this episode, I wanna address an email. I get very encouraging emails from most of you, but every now and then I get a a very strange email. And uh, yesterday I got a very interesting email from a Somali listener who seemed um, pretty upset that Somali history was being included in this series. He or she or they, I didn't ask, uh, stressed to me that Somali history is not black history. Which is fine if that's how you feel, but sweetie, the series is called Ancient Africa and whether you like it or not, Somalia is on the African continent. Furthermore, I never said Somalis were black and I'm fully aware of the fact that not everyone on the African continent is black or would consider themselves black. For instance, whenever I talk about the Amazigh people of North Africa, I refer to them as Amazigh, not Black. And that's because that's what they are. They're Amazigh, the indigenous people of North Africa. And when I refer to anyone in this series and in life, I call them by their ethnicity because in a series on pre-colonial Africa, the race of Black didn't really exist the way that it does now. But please don't ever get it confused. I am not in the habit of claiming people as black. I am a gatekeeper, I'm a hater, I'm a snob, and I'm an elitist. And anyone who is not enthusiastically happy to be black in any of its incarnations will never be claimed by me. We're not the same. You're a loser and I'm Dana. That's the big difference between you, dear listener, and I. So uh, with that understanding, Let's talk about ancient Africa. Chapter 1 African Interactions with Asia and the Middle East. The Sultanate of Mogadishu was a medieval sultanate centered in southern Somalia from the 9th to the 13th centuries. It arose as one of the preeminent powers in the Horn of Africa under the rule of Fakir al Din before becoming part of the powerful and expanding Ajuran Empire in the 13th century. The Mogadishu Sultanate maintained a vast trading network, dominated the regional gold trade, minted its own currency, and left an extensive architectural legacy in present-day southern Somalia. Fun fact! The ethnic origins of the founders of Mogadishu and its subsequent Sultanate have been the subject of much debate in Somali studies. I. M. Lewis, former Professor Emeritus of Anthropology at the London School of Economics, postulated the theory that the city was founded and ruled by a council of Arab and Persian families. However, Somali anthropologists countered that there were already existing communities on the Somali coast with local and indigenous leadership and that the Arab and Persian families had to ask permission of these communities to settle in their cities. They also point to the Amazigh scholar Ibn Battuta, who also stated that the natives of Mogadishu were dark-skinned. This is corroborated by the 1st century AD Greek document, the Periplus of the Erythraean Sea, detailing multiple prosperous port cities in ancient Somalia, as well as the identification of ancient Serapion with the city that would later be known as Mogadishu. When Ibn Battuta visited the Sultanate in the 14th century, he identified the Sultan as being of Barbara origin. Barbara was an ancient term used to describe African peoples that the Greeks were aware of, like Ethiopians and Somalis. And I think I explained this in a previous episode in this series, but yes, Barbara, Berber, these words stem from the Greek word for barbarians. And the Greeks weren't being specific to Africans when they called people barbarians, they considered the Macedonians to be barbarians. They considered the Latins who later became the Romans and all those tribes in Italy to be barbarians. They considered the Scythians, the Dacians, uh, all of the peoples of the Balkans to be barbarians. They considered the Anatolians, non-Greek Anatolians to be barbarians. Anyone who wasn't Greek they considered to be our barbarian. That's why a lot of people who back in the day would be called Berber, are now, cho- now choose to be called Amasig, which is an indigenous word, which is a word that they used to describe themselves rather than Berber, because Berber is the Arabized version of Barbara, which means barbarian in Greek, and nobody wants to have their ethnicity identified as barbarian. But isn't that funny though? Because if you told black people, yeah, we built this city called Mogadishu in southern Somalia, we would say, oh, that's real nice. Congratulations on building that city. But your boys in England and on the other side of the Gulf said it wasn't you that built it. So I guess it really do be your own because it sure as hell wasn't black people that tried to take that away from you. Anyway, I just had to have a petty moment back to Mogadishu. For many years, Mogadishu functioned as the preeminent city in the Bilad al-Babar or land of the Berbers, which is how medieval Arabic speakers refer to the Somali coast. Following his visit to the city, the 12th century Syrian historian Yaqud al-Hamawi, a former slave of Greek origin, wrote a global history of many places he visited, including Mogadishu and called it the richest and most powerful city in the region and described it as an Islamic center on the Indian Ocean. In the 13th century, the Sultanate of Mogadishu, through its trade with medieval China, had acquired enough of a reputation in Asia to attract the attention of Kublai Khan. According to Marco Polo, the Mongol Emperor sent an envoy to Mogadishu to spy out on the Sultanate, but the delegation was captured and imprisoned. Kublai Khan then sent another envoy to treat for the release of the earlier Mongol delegation sent to Africa. Archaeological excavations have recovered many coins from China, Sri Lanka, and Vietnam. The majority of the Chinese coins date to the Song Dynasty, although the Ming Dynasty and Qing Dynasty are also represented, according to historian and professor Richard Pankhurst. Indo-African relations date back to the Bronze Age period of the Indus River Valley civilizations. Pearl Millet, first domesticated in Central Africa, has been discovered on the site of Chanudaro, and there is at least one burial of African women from the same site as well. From this archeological evidence, it can be postulated that Indus River Valley maritime activities included journeys to the Horn of Africa where Indian traders brought back African crops. Pearl millet has been cultivated in South Asia since the 2nd millennium BC, but there's no evidence that it was brought to South Asia from the Near East, like wheat cultivation, because the Near East never really cultivated pearl millet. Black peppercorns were found stuffed in the nostrils of Ramesses II, placed there as part of the mummification rituals shortly after his death in 1213 BC. In the 2nd century BC, the Greek accounts of Ptolemaic Egypt and its trade relations Mention Indian ships making the trip to India to secure spices. Greek seafarers began to utilize Egyptian and Indian sailors' knowledge to conduct maritime activities in the Indian Ocean and conduct business with the Indians directly instead of relying on middlemen. When the Romans replaced the Greek administration in Egypt, this began a 400-year period of trade relations between the Roman Empire and India. Periplus of the Ithraean Sea, referred to trade relations between the kingdom of Aksum in ancient India around the first millennium. Helped by the monsoon winds, merchants traded cotton, glass beads, and other goods in exchange for gold and soft-carved ivory. The influence of Indian architecture on the Aksumite kingdom shows the level of trade development between the two civilizations, and it also points to Aksum and the uh, the Sultanate of Mogadishu being the middleman for central and southern African trade and trade with India and with Persian and Arabic kingdoms in the Indian Ocean and the Red Sea because ivory is not found in Aksum, which is in central Ethiopian highlands. The ivory came from closer to the African interior around the areas of Lake Malawi and Tanzania and places like that. So even if Central Africa wasn't directly engaged in trade with India, the Mongols, whomever, they were indirectly involved in trade and were aware of it because the ivory didn't come from Ethiopia. Chapter two, African interactions with Europe. Now Africa's interactions with Europe go back much further than what most of us are taught and don't necessarily begin with slavery. The ancient kingdom of Numidia was located in Northwest Africa from 202 to 40 BC. It initially comprised the territory that now makes up modern day Algeria, but later expanded across what is today known as Tunisia, Libya, and some parts of Morocco. The polity was originally divided between the Marsili in the east and the Masili in the west. During the Second Punic War, which lasted from 218 to 201 BC, Massinissa, king of the Masali, defeated Syphax of the, no, the Marsali, he was king of the Marsali, sorry, defeated Syphax of the Masali to unify Numidia into one kingdom. The kingdom began as a sovereign state and later alternated between being a Roman province and a Roman client state. Numidia, at its largest extent, was bordered by the ancient kingdom of Mauritania to the west at the Muluya River, the Roman province of Africa Proconsularis to the east, the Mediterranean Sea to the north, and the Sahara Desert to the south. It was one of the first major states in the history of Algeria and the Amazigh in the classical era, because remember, we already talked about the uh, Amazigh kingdom of the Garamantes. During the first part of the Second Punic War, the Eastern Masili, Marsili, sorry, under their king Gala were allied with Carthage while the Western Massali under King Syphax were allied with Rome. The kingdom of, of Massali under Syphax extended from the Malouia River to Ud-Rumelm. However, in 206 BC, the new king of the Eastern Massali, Massinissa, allied himself with Rome and Syphax of the Massali switched his allegiance to the Carthaginian side. At the end of the war, the victorious Romans gave all of Numidia to Massanissa of the Marcellae. At the the time of his death in 148 BC, Massanissa's territory extended from the Maluya to the boundary of Carthaginian territory, and also southeast as far as Cyrenaica to the Gulf of Sirte, so that Numidia entirely surrounded Carthage except towards the sea. Furthermore, after the capture of Syphax, the king in modern day Morocco with his capital based in Tingis, Bakar had become a vassal of Massanissa. Massanissa had also penetrated as far south beyond the Atlas to the Gatulai, and pheasant was also part of his domains. In 179 BC, Massanissa had received a golden crown from the inhabitants of the Greek island of Delos, as he had offered them a shipload of grain during a food shortage. A statue of Masinissa was set up in Delos in honor of him, as well as an inscription dedicated to him in Delos by a native of Rhodes. His sons too had statues of them erected on the island of Delos. And the king of Bithynia, Nicomedes, also dedicated a statue to Masinissa. And Bithynia is located in the northwestern corner of Anatolia, which is present-day Turkey. After the death of the long-lived Massinissa around 148 BC, he was succeeded by his son, Misipisa. Or no, yeah, that's about as good as it's gonna get. When Mispisa died in 118 BC, he was succeeded jointly by his two sons, Hemsal I and Adherbal. Massinissa's illegitimate grandson, Jugurtha, who was very popular amongst the Numidians, usurped the throne from Hemsol and had him killed, which led to open war with Adherbal. Jugurtha immediately incurred the wrath of Rome, not only for killing a Roman ally, but also killing some Roman businessmen who were aiding at Herbal. This led to the Jurgathing War, which Rome won. Jugurtha surrendered quickly, too quickly, and he also received a highly favorable peace treaty, which raised suspicions of bribery in Rome and Numidia. The local Roman commander was then summoned to Rome to face corruption charges brought on by his political rival, Gaius Mimmius. Jugurtha was also forced to come to Rome to testify against the Roman commander where Jugurtha was completely discredited once his violent and ruthless past became widely known in Rome and after he had been suspected of murdering a Numidian rival. War broke out again between Numidia and the Roman Republic and several legions were dispatched to North Africa under the command of the consul Quintus Cilius Metellus Numidicus. The war dragged out into a long and seemingly endless campaign as the Romans tried to defeat Jugurtha decisively. Frustrated at the apparent lack of action, Metellus' Lieutenant Gaius Marius returned to Rome to seek election as consul, and he led a series of reforms to the Roman military, now known as the Marian reforms, that made the Roman military legions more able to recruit, first of all, and withstand uh, repeated attacks in North Africa. Marius was elected so that he could enact those reforms. Once those reforms were enacted, he then returned to Numidia to take control of the war. He sent his quaestor, Sulla, who would later become his enemy, to neighboring Mauritania in order to eliminate their support for Jugurtha. With the help of Bacchus I of Mauritania, Sulla captured Jugurtha and brought the war to a conclusive end. Jugurtha was brought to Rome in chains and was placed in the Tullanium. Jugurtha was executed by the Romans in 104 BC after being paraded through the streets and Gaius Marius's triumph. And the fact that Gaius Marius got the triumph and not Sulla, who would not have been eligible for one anyway because only consuls could get a triumph, was one of the reasons for the short but very bloody civil war that Marius and Sulla went through about a decade later chapter three did they come before columbus african interactions in the americas before i start this chapter i need to fix an earlier mistake that i made last episode and probably a couple episodes before that i said that dr Anta diop was the author of they came before columbus but that was actually dr ivan van Sertima, an afro-guyanese british historian and professor Dr. Diop is the author of The African Origin of Civilization, which I will also discuss as he also has several theories about African exploration and interaction in the Americas before the transatlantic slave trade. doctor John Henry Clark, an African-American professor and historian, rounds out this trio of African, Afro-Caribbean, and African-American historians who have contributed much of the scholarship on this particular topic, and I call them the big three. This particular branch of historiography is known as pre-Columbian transoceanic contact theories, and it is not limited to Africa. Although African contact theories are what I'll be concerned with in this episode, Dr. Van Sertima, in his book *They Came Before Columbus*, relies heavily on the Olmec alternative origin speculations, which suggest that the ancient Olmec civilization was culturally influenced by African peoples based on their interpretation of the facial features of the Olmec statue heads. He additionally contends that epigraphical, genetic, and osteological evidence supports these claims. This idea was first suggested by Jose Melgar, who first discovered the first colossal heads at Hoyapan, now known as Tres Sabotes, in 1862, and subsequently published two papers that attributed this head to a Negro race. This view was espoused in the early 20th century by the historian Leo Weiner and others. Dr. Van Sertima identified the Olmecs with the Mande people of West Africa specifically. And I found that very interesting that all of these... Um, White, for lack of a better terminology, Lino Weiner, Jose Melgar was of Spaniard extraction. Leo Weiner was Austrian, of Austrian extraction or German extraction. I'm not sure which one. But all of these, like, white anthropologists and historians were the first ones, actually, to be on board with this African Olmec connection. Dr. Jean Henry Clark, who was greatly influenced by Dr. Chic Antodiap, was among many scholars who claimed that the Mesoamerican writing systems are related to African scripts. In the early 19th century, another European, Constantine Samuel Raffinesque, proposed that the Maya inscriptions were probably related to the Libico-Berber writing of North Africa. Leo Viner and others claimed that various Omec and epi epiomek symbols are similar to those found in the Vi script. The Vai syllabary is a syllabic writing system devised for the Vai language by Momolu Dualu Bukele of Jandu in what is now Grand Cape Mount County, Liberia. Bukele is regarded within the uh, Vai community as well as by most scholars as the syllabary's inventor and chief promoter when it was first documented in the 1830s. It is one of the two most successful indigenous scripts in West Africa in terms of the number of current users and the availability of literature written in the script, the other being N'ko. There is epigraphic evidence, however, that the vice script may have Cherokee Indian influence. In regards to the Olmecs, the symbols on the Tuxtla statuette, the Teo Mass, Casca Hall block, and the Celts in offering four at La Venta the epigraphic evidence for African influence on the Olmecs. These assertions have found no support amongst Mesoamerican researchers who have mostly been focusing on translating the Maya script. Olmec glyphs have yet to be mostly translated, mostly because researchers have yet to find a Mesoamerican equivalent of a Rosetta Stone. So the Aztec script and some mixed text scripts, some Oaxacan scripts, Those have been decoded and they have been used in conjunction with scripts written in both Maya and Mixtec or Maya and, and Toltec or whoever to decode the Maya script. Because classical Maya and the Maya that is currently spoken, which was the Maya that you heard in the second Black Panther movie, It's markedly different, they're not the same. Same way old English and modern day English are not the same. They haven't found anything that would help them to translate the Olmec glyphs and there are no speakers of any sort of current Olmec language. Now, what they did have, because there was a lot more for Mayan scripts especially, but Spanish clergy destroyed a lot of them in the 16th century and 17th centuries during the Inquisition. Genetic and immunological studies over the past two decades have failed to yield evidence of pre-Columbian African contributions to the indigenous populations of the Americas, meaning there's really no genetic proof to back up assertions that Indigenous Americans and Amerindians have African ancestry, or that Africans contributed significantly to their ancestry. I mean, they might have some now because of post Columbian, the, the Columbian exchange, but there's no evidence to suggest that pre Columbian exchange Africans contributed anything genetically to their ancestry. Instead, genetic studies have revealed that the earliest Americans carried ancestry closely related to Melanesian and Australian Aboriginal peoples. However, it must be said that the field of genetic testing of Native Americans has primarily been focused on North American natives, and across Central and South America, there's a lot of genetic variety, even amongst the indigenous. So if you are taking samples from Inuit populations or from, you know, The Lakota in the plains of North America, that's not going to tell you a whole lot about, you know, Native Americans in the Pampas or in the interior of Brazil or in Ecuador or in Chile or something like that, because there is an enormous amount of genetic diversity amongst the indigenous of North and Central and South America. For instance, indigenous populations in the Baja California region of Mexico have found close genetic ties to the indigenous Austronesians and Negritos of the Philippines, whereas the indigenous peoples of the Oaxaca region of Mexico, which is further south on the west coast, share closer genetic ties to Melanesian groups. Leo Viner's Africa and the Discovery of America suggests similarities between the Mandinka people of West Africa and native Mesoamerican religious symbols such as the winged serpent and the sun disc or Quetzalcoatl, and words that have Mande roots and share similar meanings across both cultures such as kore, gadwa, and kubila in Arabic or kofila in Mandinka. Malian sources describe what some consider to be visits to the New World by a fleet from the Mali Empire in 1311 led by Abu Bakr II. According to the only known primary source-based copy of Christopher Columbus's journals, transcribed by the Dominican friar Bartolome de las Casas, the purpose of Columbus's third voyage was to test both one the claims of King John II that of Portugal that canoes had been found which set out from the coast of Guinea, West Africa, and sailed to the West with merchandise, and two, the claims of the native inhabitants of the Caribbean island of Hispaniola that there had come to Hispaniola from the South and Southeast, a black people who have the tops of their spears made of a metal, which they call guanin, of which he had sent samples to the sovereigns to have them assayed, when it was found that 32 of 32 parts, 18 were gold, six were silver, and eight were copper. The Brazilian researcher, Nia de Guidon, who led the excavations of the Pedro Ferrada site, said that she believed that humans might have come not overland from Asia, but by boat from Africa, with the journey taking place about 100,000 years ago, well before the accepted dates for the earliest human migrations that led to the prehistoric settlement of the Americas. Michael R. Waters, a geoarchaeologist at Texas A&;M University, noted the absence of genetic evidence in modern populations to support Guidan's claim. Personally, I don't doubt that sub-Saharan Africans attempted or were even successful in making contact with indigenous peoples in the Americas, in the Ghana Kingdom, the Mali, the Songhai, and later on in the Jolof Empire, the, the uh, Congo kingdoms the Ndongo peoples they all ventured out into the atlantic and they all wrote about it they all talked about it the Carillos have an oral history of it maybe there was maybe there wasn't like i said the congo kingdom had trading outposts in present-day sao tome and principe and equatorial guinea that were prosperous 100 years before the portuguese began sailing down the Atlantic coast of africa Now, mostly these Congo traders were engaged in trade with the various African kingdoms to their north and south, but Africans were aware of the trade winds and how they blew, so who's to say they didn't (laughs) undertake transatlantic voyages as well? Next episode, which will be the final episode in this series, I will discuss the social and political movements in Africa and in Europe in the Middle East from the 16th to the 19th centuries that facilitated the transatlantic slave trade and the age of colonialism in Africa. Join me next time for more musings on history.